Good morning again, everyone. Let's uh, pray together before we go into the Scriptures. Father, the book that we hold in, your, in our hands this morning is what You have left uh, for us to study, uh, to know, and to apply so that we might know You, know how to live for Your glory, uh, know how to live here until You come back for us. There's a great assurance that we have that this book is powerful and cuts to the heart, cuts to our heart, gets to the very core of who we are and reveals motives and thought patterns and and behaviors that need to be changed or need to be reinforced. So this morning as we study, uh, one of the amazing things about being in this room together is your spirit is so powerful and so omniscient can take the truth and minister to each individual person what they need today, even as we go through a a guided study of the Scriptures. So we're going to trust you for that and ask that uh, the communication of the Word is done in a way that would give us understanding of the text and glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, as we uh, resume our study of the gospel and and hope to finish it soon, and it is uh, a great time to get back into John and learn more about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because as we come to this portion of the Scripture, it fits uh, some of the events of our calendar very well and allows us to uh, really do a good job of, of reflecting on these passages in the right way because of the time of the year that we're at as we're coming up on Easter and a couple of weeks will be Palm Sunday and then uh, Easter will be after that. I'd like to share with you a headline that I found. It is dated May 15th, 2013, so it is not uh, necessarily current, but it was in the New York Daily News. I think they picked it up from the Telegraph in London, England. And here's the headline. It said, mourners were shocked as dead man comes back to life in his coffin at the funeral. Mourners freaked out when a dead man came back to life at his own funeral. Friends and family jumped out of their skin and ran for their lives when Brighton Damazanti, 34, started moving in his coffin last Monday. They thought their buddy, who they thought died following a long illness, had come back to haunt them. A man by the name of Lot Gaka, the Zimbabwean transport worker's boss, somehow managed to keep his cool, springing into action to save his pal. He desperately pulled the blankets off Azantha's body and called an ambulance. Rushed to the nearby provincial hospital, he spent two days in intensive care before being discharged last week. He said, I don't know what happened, and I only remember being on life support system in the hospital. But everything is history to me. What I can only confirm is that people gathered at my house to mourn, but I was given another chance, and I am alive I feel okay now. You can look up all kinds of stories like that. This was one that was easy to confirm. And and I can tell you that sometimes these stories happen more often in countries that do not practice embalming. Okay. (laughs) Thought maybe you'd catch that one. All right. I want you to know as we look at the chapter we're going to study this morning, it deals with the death and the burial of Jesus. 
And Jesus was not embalmed, but I can most certainly assure you that he did die. And as we look at John chapter 19, verses 38 to 42, we see John's record of the burial of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that comes to my mind in terms of the study is why are the details of the burial so important? And how does the burial of Jesus Christ impact you and me today? Let me give you five statements that come out of this passage and some others that help us realize the significance of the burial of Jesus Christ. And the first is this. The burial proves the actual death of Jesus. No surprise there, right? Let's look at what John has to say. The burial proves the actual death of Jesus. In chapter 19, verse 30, we read that when Jesus received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. This helps us to remember that Jesus decided when it was time to die. And when He released His spirit, He was fully dead. I want you to know that He did not pass out or go into unconsciousness. Because in verse 34 it says that the soldiers were given a job to do. When people were on the cross and they lingered and lingered and and the Romans thought it was time for it to be over, they had people that came along with heavy wooden mallets or heavy iron mallets and they would smash the femurs of the people that were on the cross. And in doing so, it would induce more shock It will also induce quicker suffocation because now they would not be able to push themselves up on the execution pole so that their diaphragm could expand so that they could breathe. And we read in the text that the soldier did come and he broke the legs of both of the thieves, one that was crucified on either side of Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. The result was the soldier took a spear, in verse 34, and pierced his side, and immediately blood and water came out. Now what this uh, means for us is that depending on the side that the spear thrust took place, it would have pierced his diaphragm and at least would have gone into a lung or his liver or his heart or or just depending on the side. Uh, There's no way that Jesus was going to live through that event. We see that John gives us enough details in the story to show us that Jesus didn't just pass out or slip into unconsciousness. He gives us some other details too, beginning in verse 38. He tells us who the undertakers were. We have three of those in town, Irvines, Welkers, and Rarick Carpenters. And uh, we have a a lot of those in the area. I have a, a form on my computer it's a funeral planning sheet that I devised, and I have on that a list of a, a number of different funeral homes in the area, and I use that to, when when somebody calls to help plan services and make sure arrangements get made and things like that. Um, these two men that we read about in the scriptures aren't necessarily in the undertaking business. God has them there divinely, providentially, and we'll learn some more about them. These two undertakers are Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, verse 38. After these things, meaning after Jesus had died, after he had been pierced with the spear, after they had not broken his legs so that the scripture would be fulfilled, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. 
Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they lead, laid Jesus there. We know that the death or the, the burial proves the death, and John tells us who the undertakers were. Uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph is called a, a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. If you turn back in your Bible to John chapter 12, just to pick up that thread of thought a little bit. <clears throat> John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. John writes, Nevertheless, many even of the the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him, for sheer they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. This was one of the uh, commentary points that John makes about secret followers of Jesus And he brings this up again in this passage, but I don't think it's necessarily to mark Joseph of Arimathea for the rest of his life. I think it's set in the context of helping us to understand that he was a secret follower, but now he has uh, risen and actually has found courage to do something that nobody else was willing to do. The other visitor, or the other worker here is Nicodemus. He was the secret visitor that visited Jesus by night back in John chapter 3. Both of these men were wealthy. They were members of the Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. And the council was the group of men, uh, elders in that, uh, that city of Jerusalem that had said that Jesus was worthy of being put to death. But Luke tells us in Luke 23, verses 50 and 51, that Joseph did not go along with their decision. He did not consent to the death of Jesus Christ. One of the interesting things about this passage is you consider the the four or five short verses about the burial of Jesus is this. If you go back and study history and crucifixion history, you find that uh, Romans would, would not allow the bodies of people to be buried if they had been convicted of treason or sedition. In other words, trying to overthrow the Roman government. They would use those bodies and seek to make an example of that person to all of the population that it was in their best interest to not rebel against Rome. So often those bodies would be allowed to hang on the tree so that the vultures could pick at them until they were just skeletons. So, Jesus was convicted of of sedition, wrongly so. His placard read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, in opposition to the Caesar. And so he was condemned and convicted for that. So I want you to understand, as John tells us who the names of the two men are that are going to take care of the body of Jesus, uh, normally it would be the members of the family that would come for the body and have to be bold enough to request that body from Pilate. But in this case, somebody who had been wrongly convicted of of treason or sedition, here's two men, not related to him at all, 
But they come forward and they say, I want the body of Jesus. I will bury it. And this is John's way of helping us to understand that Joseph finally has stepped past his fear and has now identified himself with Jesus Christ. And here's what they did. The details of the passage help us to see that they planned a little bit. In fact, it probably looks like they spent all day getting ready for this event because Jesus was condemned by the council early in the morning. The crucifixion would have begun around 9 in the morning and would have gone until 3 in the afternoon. And so that allows them to plan. We learn some details. There is um, one who makes plans to go before Pilate and ask for the body. The other who makes plans to get the wrappings and the spices. They were aware of how things were transpiring on the death watch because they knew exactly when to go to Pilate to ask for the body. It's interesting reading some of the commentators. One in particular said that they weren't, Joseph of Arimathea wasn't a secret follower of Jesus Christ. He was secreted in the tomb watching the death of Jesus Christ. What an interesting perspective. The text does lend itself to our understanding that Joseph of Arimathea was very aware of what was going on on the Mount of Calvary. He was very aware that Jesus was dying and he was very aware when the death took place because that's when he went and talked to Pilate immediately because they had a limited time window to get that body down off of the cross and to do certain things with it before sundown was over and the new day had started. We also see that not only were they uh, prepared to go and see Pilate right at the at the correct moment, but we see that their their choice of how they were going to handle the body represented and and gives us indication that they put some thought into it. The Bible tells us that they used a hundred pounds weight of myrrh and aloes. That would translate into our our measurement system as somewhere between sixty five and seventy five pounds of myrrh and aloe. And they would take that body and that went into the tomb. And uh, we, we find that a tomb was used that nobody had ever been in before. Nobody had ever been placed in this tomb. Matthew chapter 27, verse 60, tells us that it was Joseph's new tomb. Joseph of Arimathea. It was his new tomb. And it was found in a garden. Now, I want you to think about what these two men are doing the prophet Isaiah said that when they got done with Jesus and Jesus was on the cross, he was no longer going to be recognizable. You talk about a labor of, of love and having a strong ability to look at gore and to be able to deal with, with a mangled body. That's what they were dealing with as they took Jesus off the cross. They took that body and prepared it for burial. They took it in the tomb, laid it out, and the Bible says they, they would put it on the, on the strips, and they wrapped the strips of clothing around it, and they mixed in 65 to 75 pounds of uh, fragrance around that body. That's what they would do in Israel, because they didn't embalm in Israel like they did in Egypt. And it was one of the things they did to offset the smell of the, the decomposition of the body. The tomb was in a garden. And it's interesting, as I thought about this, I was reminded of, of previous trips to Israel, and I was thinking about the fact that David and Amanda, our missionaries in Uganda, are in Israel right now. 
and uh, they've they've seen some sites and they're going to see some others and and probably one of the places they're going to go to is a the traditional place where often people are taken called Gordon's Calvary and uh, they'll also go into a place where they'll see the garden tomb and you can go into a realistic uh, first century tomb that has a stone that would be in a trench that would be able to roll in front of the opening and you'll be able to go in and look and see uh, grave beds where bodies would have been laid. Um, I know that when we were on our trip a few years ago when we were with Jimmy DeYoung, he felt that Jesus wasn't buried in the garden tomb. He felt that Jesus died on the Mount of Olives based on evidence from Matthew 27 and he was buried up in the Mount of Olives. And he had some reasons for that. It, it doesn't really help the church uh, in trying to determine exactly where Jesus was buried. It's enough for us to understand that all four of the gospel writers assert and affirm that Jesus did in fact died and he was buried. And Joseph and Nicodemus did it. Because he says in John 21, he's going to let us know that I actually went to the tomb and I saw the burial clothes laying there. So John is a, an eyewitness to the burial site. He might not have seen the body in the tomb, but he's certainly an eyewitness to the burial of sight because, as we'll see next time, he saw the burial clothes. But there's something interesting that comes out of this passage that I think we need to talk about before we move on any further. It's this whole idea of, of what was going on in Joseph's life and what we can learn from it. We don't know when G Joseph of Arimathea began to become a, a tuned-in follower of Jesus as Messiah. But we do know that John tells us he did it secretly. You know, there are some things in life that you do in secret, and there are some things that you do out loud. For instance, when you go hunting, if you're in archery season, you try to do it in secret. You do that by how you dress. You wear camo, and there's all these fancy kinds of camo and different applications so that you can blend into your environment. You are trying to be as undetectable as possible. It's that way right now as we come into spring turkey season. And, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to blend into your surroundings. You don't want that bird to pick up any movement. You don't want them to see anything out of place. In deer season, however, once archery is over and you move into rifle season, now you have a completely different perspective. The goal is to stay alive and to not be mistaken for a deer. And so you switch from clothing that blends into your surroundings, from clothing that shouts out and lets everybody know who's sober, I'm here, don't shoot me. It's called blaze orange. Fortunately, uh, we've learned enough about deer to realize that they are pretty colorblind. Blaze orange is easy to be identified and it gives you away. Spiritually, though, there are some things worth thinking about as we look at the life of Joseph, and that is that sometimes people go through life and they are trying to camouflage themselves so that they blend in with others, so that they can say that they're a follower of Jesus Christ, but they want to do it secretly. And so their language and their behavior is like that of the unsaved people that are around them at the workplace or at school or at college. It is the approach of being a camouflage Christian because of fear or ridicule of what other people might think. Instead, 
what we ought to do is be a little bit more blaze orange about things, not so quiet about our convictions or our beliefs. Oftentimes we camouflage ourselves so as to not rock the boat or not make more things, things more difficult at work or in my family. What God wants us to do is to rejoice that Joseph went forward in his faith when he did. But he also wants us to learn a lesson and ask the hard question of ourselves, which would be this. How would I be identified this morning? Am I a secret follower whose lifestyle reveals the fact that I'm governed by fear so that I won't be ridiculed as a follower of Jesus Christ? Or am I blazingly identified as his follower? I believe the times are coming, and they're coming quickly, when there will be no more middle-of-the-road stuff, folks. You can only be so quiet for so long before you're going to have to fly the true colors. There's no more chameleon. There's no more blending in. There's no more camo. Pretty soon, there'll be no holds barred. It should already be true of us now. That's what our baptism is supposed to be all about. When we go under the water and we follow Jesus Christ with our life, what we're saying publicly is I want everybody to know that I'm an identified follower of Jesus Christ and my life will reflect that. Take a lesson from Joseph. Don't wait until it's almost the end of your life before you decide to fly the colors for Christ. Because all of that time that's gone by is lost and you never get it back. You never get it back. And think about all the, all the lost time. All of the missed opportunities. Because of wearing camo as a Christian instead of blazing orange. I'm thankful for Joseph and Nicodemus in the story. They get a positive mention. But I think they also warn us. They warn us to not to wait too long to follow Jesus with zeal. If you haven't clearly identified with Christ, with your lifestyle and with believer's baptism, even though the passage doesn't talk about baptism at all, I would simply say that that would be the first thing you would want to do in order to say that you're identifying with Christ. So, the burial proves the actual death of Jesus. Joseph and Nicodemus were the undertakers. Uh, let me give you another reason why the burial of Jesus Christ is so vitally important. The burial was necessary for the fulfillment of prophecy. And it helps us to know that God's Word is true. Earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus predicted that He was going to die and that he was going to rise again. You don't die and rise again without that intermediate step of being what? Buried. Dead and buried. Jesus said in John 30, 14, Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. And if he's going to be lifted up in death, he's also going to have to be raised up in resurrection. You can't be raised up in resurrection unless you're truly dead and buried. He also mentions this concept in chapter 8, verse 28, and chapter 10, verse 11, and 17 through 18. 
But we can go further than that, and we can realize that even his ancestor, biologically speaking, King David, made a prophecy in Psalm 16 where he said that he would not allow the Holy One to undergo decay. It speaks to the burial of Jesus, but it also alludes to the resurrection. Jesus was in the ground, but he came out again. As we read earlier, the scripture reading done by Brandon, the prophet Isaiah, 730 years before the, the arrival of Jesus Christ, the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 53, verses 8 and 9, that Jesus, when he died, would be numbered with the transgressors. He died with criminals on the cross but he was buried with the rich in death. Joseph was a rich man. And the, the burial in Joseph's grave is a fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus was not put in the grave of a common criminal. You know why? Because he wasn't a common criminal. He was the sinless Son of God. And he was honored as such as a rich man. And he was placed in the tomb of that rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. We see, too, that Jesus predicted his death, burial, and resurrection by alluding to it through the story of Jonah when he said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so, too, the Son of Man would give his life and be buried and rise again from the dead. The burial was necessary for the fulfillment of prophecy. Well, it goes on to the third point I'd like to mention about the story this morning and expand out of the text just a little bit. For those of us that spend a lot of time around here, we might want to begin to ask some questions as to how does this impact us in terms of life and ministry. Well, here's how it impacts us in terms of ministry. It impacts our message. Because the burial is a significant part of the complete gospel. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you turn with me please to 1 Corinthians Chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now the whole point of chapter 15 is to reinforce the doctrinal teaching and the truthfulness regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in order to have a resurrection, you have to be dead. You have to be dead and you have to be buried. And he says in verse 1, by way of review, I want to draw your attention, basically. He says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached, which you also received, and in the, which you stand right now. Verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance, this is the primary message. What is it? The primary message that I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was what? He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then He appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve and to others. Paul says that the burial is a significant part of the complete Gospel. And here is why. When you understand that Jesus truly died and he was truly buried in the ground, it necessitates a belief in the miraculous resurrection of his body from the dead. And do you know that ever since Jesus died on that cross, Satan has constantly been seeking to undermine 
the hope in the doctrine of the resurrection. Well, you get to Matthew 28. The tomb is empty. The soldiers go to the high priest. And what do they come up with? They fabricate a lie. What is the lie? Go and, and tell people that you fell asleep. And that his disciples came and stole the body away. What they are authenticating in their lie is that Jesus was truly in the hole. Even their lie partly tells the truth. He was dead and he was buried. They just deny the resurrection. But throughout the life of the church, ever since the day of the resurrection, there have been advocates of different lies regarding the resurrection of Jesus. For instance, one is called the swoon theory. How many of you have ever swooned? See, Jen swooned over me, okay? But this is, this is having to do with the resurrection. This is called the swoon theory. It was advocated by a German scholar named Paulus who taught that Jesus never died. He was taken down from the cross alive and that when he was entombed, the spices strengthened him. Think about that theory for a minute. 75 pounds of potpourri wrapped around your body for three days and you feel strengthened. No medical care, no wound treatment, just an overabundance of Glade room freshener and you're ready to come out of the tomb. See, that's the ridiculousness of what it means to reject the clear teaching of Scripture, the swoon theory. There's another one called the vision theory. The disciples did not see the resurrected Christ and instead saw a vision of Him. There's the legend theory that simply asserts that the resurrection is not a historical fact. It's legendary. There's the stolen body theory by the enemies or by the disciples. And I just mention these in passing simply because of reminding us that unbelief is harder to believe sometimes than the actual truth. Here's what Paul wants us to understand in 1 Corinthians 15. Without the death and the burial, there is no resurrection. And if there's no resurrection, we're all nuts. That's what Paul says later on in the chapter. We're nuts. We deserve a rubber room and a straitjacket and the pity of the world. Each gospel writer affirms the reality of the burial. And John gives us enough details to help us to understand that when he talks about what happened to Jesus' body on the cross, when he talks about the work and the effort of the two undertakers, when he talks about how the body was taken care of and laid in the tomb and then the stone was rolled in place, it is obvious and absolutely certain that Jesus was, in fact, dead and buried. I want you to understand one other thing about the importance of this before we seek to apply it to our life. Would you look at Revelation chapter 1 with me, please? We're just going to look at one verse, but it involves the words and the speaking of Jesus Christ. In his resurrected state, John records them for us. And I want you to notice with me, please, beginning at verse 17. John is having a vision, and this is what he says. When I saw him, meaning Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, 
do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. Now notice this next phrase. And I was dead. I was dead. And behold, look here. This is a great word. Don't miss this. Behold, that's what the idea is behind the word. I am alive forevermore. See, one of the things that is so important about your faith this morning regarding the belief in the burial of Jesus Christ, the death and the burial of Jesus Christ is this. If he is not truly dead and if he's not truly buried, then he is in fact a liar. Because he says clearly, I was dead, but I am alive forevermore. What that reminds you and me about this morning is this. If he died, he was buried. If he was buried, then he arose. And that means his testimony about both of those things, the death and the burial and the resurrection is true. And that means in response to this testimony of Jesus Christ, he is to be believed and he is to be followed. He is to be believed and he is to be followed. He died. He gave up his spirit. He was pierced by a sword and his blood and his bodily fluids ran out. He was a dead corpse, dead and buried. Three days later, he rose triumphant over that grave. And he is to be believed for the hope of eternal life. And he is to be followed as a way of saying thank you and an expression of faithfulness. Because he is the one who has experienced victory over the grave. And as we head into the next few weeks and we think about the implications of the resurrection and how that impacts the existence of the church and the spread of the message of the gospel, you and I need to understand that the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacts us in terms of understanding our own salvation. It impacts us in terms of how we understand the observation of baptism. And it impacts us in how we understand the New Testament's teaching of spiritual growth. What do you do with the death and burial of Jesus Christ today? Let's end our time in the Word by looking at Romans chapter 6. Paul says, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. Begin to pay attention to the, the flow of thought. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? That's really not important for us at this moment to debate whether or not this is spiritual baptism or water baptism. The significance is the combination and the corollary that is seen between what baptism teaches and what actually happened to Jesus Christ on the cross. He says being baptized 
being placed into Christ correlates to dying with him on the cross. Therefore, verse 4, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. As we understand this passage, I want you to at least grab a hold of this this morning. When a person trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior, the Bible says the old person who they were, being enslaved to sin and its strength, has died and is buried with Jesus in his death. And when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are made alive. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Paul says, the old person, the old man, that was under the domination and control of sin is dead. And in that place has been raised a new man who is no longer under the dominion and power of sin. The death, the burial of Jesus Christ on the cross is what only not only secured and guaranteed and purchased our eternal salvation, but it becomes an actual reality for us when we believe on Jesus Christ as our Savior so that at the moment we believe in Him, our old man dies and is never to come to life again. And we are buried with Him in His death and we are raised to newness of life. If you do not have an actual burial of Jesus Christ in the ground, all of this imagery is lost. And you do not have a working theology of salvation. And you do not have a working theology of how to grow in Christ either. Because if Jesus wasn't buried and raised to newness of life, you and I have absolutely no hope for victory over sin. We're just going to be so frustrated we're going to give up and we're just going to go out and be utter failures. But that's not what Paul says. He says, verse 7, He who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is mastery over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so what do you do with that? Well, he says in verse 11, even so or likewise, some of your Bibles are going to say, likewise, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Or even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. The reality is some this morning may be struggling with a habitual sin that continues to raise itself up over and over and over. And you, you have a desire, you have a longing, and you make attempts to try to have victory, but it keeps coming back. And, and part of the problem may be that your theology in the very beginning isn't correct, and your response to that theology isn't correct. Paul says you've got to take the reality of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and make it applicable to your life for yourself. You must reckon yourself you must claim it to be true for you. 
Christ died for you and He set you free and you've been raised to newness of life and you can experience victory. You must apply these things to yourself. Now, you don't do it on your own power. Chapter 8 says we live through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the great hope. But you see, people who go through life and they're defeated and say, I'll never have victory over this. I'll never be able to stop swearing. I'll never be able to stop looking at that material. I'll never be able to stop losing my temper. Are calling Romans chapter 6 a lie. Romans chapter 6 says on the the basis of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, your old man dies and is buried with Him. And you are raised to newness of life. See, without the burial, all of the imagery of our salvation and all the application of that act is lost. You have to have the burial. It is the, it is the basis on which the old man is put away and is gone forever. The old man is dead. Aren't you glad that when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, what you were known as, as a, a, by nature, a child of wrath is dead and gone. And now, being raised in the newness of life, you are called a child of the King. You are a son of the King. You've been brought out of darkness and into the kingdom of His dear Son. Paul says, here's what you do. You reckon it true for yourselves. You consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. You're not under law. You're under grace. See, the burial of Jesus Christ is a significant part of understanding the theology of salvation. It is is that part that helps us to remember in in absolute real time when I trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, that old person that I was died. He's dead. And now sin does not have to have functional control or mastery over me anymore because I've been raised to newness of life. The old man's dead and buried. I'm alive in Jesus Christ. And this morning as you go, I would hope that as you think about what John has given to us and seeing how the New Testament develops some of these other parts of how important the burial of Jesus Christ is, you would leave here with a greater confidence in the Word of God because hopefully once again, God has shown Himself to be truthful, and able to be believed in every detail. And second, that you would go away having a greater commitment to understanding what it means to have new life in Christ. And thirdly, we might be challenged by the example of Joseph and from the teaching of Romans 6, that we ought to be committed to godly living because of being crucified with Christ, because of being buried with Christ, and because of being raised with Christ Jesus. He set us free. He set us free. This morning, I want to remind everybody what the gospel was that Paul gave to us. 
that Jesus Christ died for our sins as our substitute. And he paid the price for our sin. He was buried. And then he rose again on the third day. And that if anyone would come to him in repentance and faith, believing in Jesus Christ alone as their salvation, for the, as their Savior, they would experience forgiveness of sin and receive the gift of eternal life. And so the invitation is, would you, if you've never done so before, is today the day that you should ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior? The Scriptures invite you. They say, now is the day of salvation. And I plead with you, be persuaded to believe on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Now, Lord, deepen our understanding of some of the truths that we've covered this morning. Deepen it so that we're not easily swayed by false teaching. And deepen it so that we're not easily discouraged if we experience failure or have moments of disobedience in our life. Because there is grace and mercy to help in our time of need. I pray you would bless your people with safety as they travel, with joy as they consider what Christ has done for them, and that you would give them a fortitude and a strength to live life in the power of the Spirit today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to sing 250.